Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Today on the show, we have Lisa Gersey. Lisa was raised from the age of five in a Connecticut-based doomsday cult known as The Work, led by a man who called himself Brother Julius and eventually God. His message was that he was a sin-demonstrating messiah sent to bring about the end of the world. The altered reality of this small but extremely toxic group was Lisa's entire life until she escaped at age 26 with her young daughter. It's a very powerful story, very powerful experiences, and an incredible case study about this man who called himself the Messiah. Here's Lisa now. I am very happy to have Lisa Gersey on the show today. You have such a story to tell, and I know you've been telling it, and it's so powerful when people get to the point in their lives where they say, I need to put this together and kind of write out what happened, Be also be willing and able to address questions. It's time. It's time to expose what happened. It's also time, probably as part of a person's healing, to be able to not be too afraid to talk and not be too afraid of the leader, because usually these leaders can be quite intimidating in their way and scary, actually, more than intimidating. So it says a lot when people say, okay, I'm done being too afraid. I'm done being pushed into silence. And so I want to welcome you today. I know it's going to be an important and heavy discussion. And so welcome and please let us know a little bit about you. I live in a small town, a suburb of New York City. I have two children, two grandchildren. I work as a caregiver and an advocate for the developmentally disabled community. I'm also a writer and a poet. Uh, I am working on a memoir called The Work, The World, and Me in Between about my experiences. I have a book, book of poetry coming out, hopefully by the end of the year. I wanted to to dovetail on a piece of that for a moment before we continue. So some people don't know, but right before I got my counseling degree, I got teaching credentials in special ed from BU. And so I'd always loved working with the population of people with special needs and now work with adults with special needs whenever I can and work with the siblings of those with special needs because of how they sometimes have their own needs because of it. One of the things that I learned that is so the antithesis of being involved in a cult or the way kind of the cult leader's mind works or ego needs are that I learned by doing special ed and continuing to do it and helping that the process matters often more than the final and finished product. That if you're enjoying yourself, if you're building confidence, if you are learning other skills, if you're connecting with others, if there are moments of insight. And so at the end of the day, have you been able to complete the task? Maybe, maybe not. Does that matter? Because there's so much along the way that feeds the the soul in so many ways, but it seems that within a cult, it's the finished product. Not are you enjoying yourself along the way, but how much are you willing to sacrifice? How much are you willing to do? And how much can this leader seem like they're the best thing on earth? And so it's a very different way of just approaching the world. So I have a feeling just in you doing this work and having it be very real and there's so much humanity in it and really being able to see everyone as equal in their own ways, which is also so different from the hierarchy within a cult that it's probably healing in its own right. Very much so, you know, because when you're in a cult, you're very much taught to be reticent and faded to the background and be very silent. There's no um, autonomy of thought and courage. I want to hear about your story. I want to hear about the after effects. Before we start, because we're already talking about talking, there are people who don't want to come forward and there are people who are either too afraid to or they're worried about coming forward or they're still protective of the narrative or of the leader after all these years. So what have you noticed just with people 
who have come out of this group with many of them not wanting to talk. How can we understand that? At first, I was terrified uh, because of the conditioning, because of the residual effects of brainwashing. The first knee-jerk response is fear. You know, it's not a conscious thought. This is not the right thing to do. This is bringing up the past. Let it go. Get through it. And honestly, I have only been in touch with maybe three or four people that I know from my past that, that are willing to talk about it to me. But when I've asked them if they wanted to be involved in a documentary or a podcast, it's always kind of turned down. Not always. I have some friends who have been in interviews and for newspapers and things of that sort. But my own conjecture about that is just that it's still fear. It's perhaps shame. It's embarrassment. I think the difference with an adult joining a cult versus my being raised in one is an important difference. Because I think that people who joined a cult and then left and realized just how bad it was, maybe don't want to talk about how they joined a cult or left their regular life. Whereas I never had a choice. And so I literally was brainwashed. That was my normal life for until I was 26 years old. And I'm, I can't speak to why other people don't come forward as much as I do, except that I think it just has to do with let's get over it. Let's move on. It was a long time ago. And for me, the scars remain. It's not that I'm not able to function because I do. And my experiences have made me stronger and more empathetic and more intuitive about people, especially narcissists. But I'm not easily fooled these days, or at least I'd like to think I'm not. I'm very wary of people, very wary of religions that point to themselves, not to a higher purpose. You know, they say that a true religious leader, I don't like the word religious, but a true leader that wants people to have a better life points to the better life. They don't point to themselves or an organization. And in my life, every single element of it was about the cult. Right. Okay. Okay. I think that's really well defined and how it's different. And, and there isn't anything wrong with not wanting to talk, but it's really good to understand I think for some people, why they don't, it says a lot about the nature of the group and what happened there, right? You have to kind of go through the fire to tell your story and it shouldn't have to be that way, but it is when things are so fear-based and there's such intimidation or that lingering feeling of intimidation. The way I look at it for me is I've already lost so much. My family has already been blown apart. Um, there's been so many changes in my life and adjustments I've had to make that I almost feel like, what more do I have to lose? You know, what do I, I have a small circle of family and friends who support me. And if they don't want to hear this or, or listen to my story, that's fine too, because it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. But for the most part, I'm, I'm just not afraid of repercussions anymore. I, I think that you have to speak truth to power and you, it's almost a responsibility to educate people. There's too many cults and there's too many high control groups. Not every cult leader claims they're God, like Julius did. But anytime you take away a person's free will and, and autonomy and free thought and speech, you're dealing with cult-like mentality and activity. It's really true. And, you know, now that there has been so much press about cults and so many shows about it, which is so fantastic, I don't get asked the same question when people ask me what I do. Uh, and the question I used to be asked in the 80s and even through the 90s was, are cults still around? And I thought, How, mm, this is my daily life. How do you not know that? But I guess people just didn't know. Now they know. But there are thousands and thousands of cultic groups and some that have just changed their format or changed their names or changed their leadership, which happens within a lot of cults where people sometimes raised in it or within leadership positions in it feel like, oh, I know how to do this. And I can, you know, have some sort of new organization where I take basically the techniques I learned and start my own thing. Um, so I, I think cults will always exist, actually. What do you think? I think that cults by their nature thrive in secrecy and unless they're the types that actively recruit new members, new followers, if you will. But um, just because they're trying to avoid maybe the law or, for lack of a better word, persecution, that was a big word that was used in, in the cult I was in, 
you were supposed to eventually kind of welcome persecution because it meant you were on the right path. There's that otherness. There's that, you know, whether you're in a commune situation or just everyone's working for the same companies, it's that very us versus them. And there is a lot of secrecy in the beginning because nobody wants to be on the news or or have to explain themselves or have their families find out. It, you know, it makes you, it makes you feel special and separate and and all of that feeds into the control that cult leaders use to make you feel special. For my situation, it was the 70s when there were a lot of, uh, you know, hippies and seekers and people kind of dropping out of society. And, you know, I, I need to be on a different path and all different backgrounds of people. But I just remember it being a little kid, but I have a very good memory of how people acted and looked and the bare feet and the sandals and you know, Julius in his robe and the men all with beards. And it was very retro, the long hair and the women being told to look very, very plain. And it was a time of um, seeking for truth, I guess. I mean, not that that's so different now in 2022, but it's different now. We're in uh, the age of technology and computers and, and how you can just Google anything you want to know. Whereas back then, you just went along with your regular life until all of a sudden this man shows up. And if you're a vulnerable person, as my mother was, and easily influenced, you just buy it, hook, line, and sinker. I'm not really sure the psychology of why some people would instantly know this is crazy, this is bananas. And some go, oh my goodness, I met the Christ returned. I mean, it's so extreme, but that was what my mother believed. And she uprooted our family and we moved from a suburb of Boston. Me, my brother, my father and mother, we moved to Connecticut where Brother Julius's work was based. And my father was never a believer. I'd like to say that right from the, the outset, that he didn't join. He went along with my mother to keep the family together. And, you know, I think because of his own fear also of just because she would have moved with us kids anyway. My mother is very strong-willed and so, you know, so she, she moved us before my father even had a job in Connecticut, before we even had a home. We lived in a, in a motor inn for a while. Then the adventure began. Then it was just like, it became a snowball. Okay. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, just so you know, I mean, Brother Julius, when you're in this field, Brother Julius is a name, you know, and it is that kind of story that people like us learned from to see how something could be created. And someone could also be so non-spiritual running a spiritual community and somehow still be seen as the Messiah, even though there's really nothing about his behavior that would say anything even close to being messianic or Christ-like, if that's what you believe, or God-like. It became so interesting as an example of people not seeing what's right in front of them. The emperor's new clothes, you know. Um, yes. Well, he was he was an extremely charismatic person, an extremely unusual personality, I would think. And almost by virtue of just having the audacity to have that kind of message, I think made people's ears prick up like, well, you know, he, he claims to have had an out-of-body experience and he claims to have heard the voice of God and saw a big white light and heard the booming voice of God saying, you're my son and you're, I'm sending you out to the world to, to bring judgment upon this world. I mean, that, that was his ultimate message, but I think it was a little, a little more soft peddled in the very beginning. He touted himself as a, a prophet and a teacher and a preacher of, of the Bible, which is fairly mainstream. And then it was almost like when he got his people to start believing in more and more and more. He pushed the envelope until toward the end, it was, I'm God, and will you do anything I ask? And then, as we know, it turned into uh, people getting killed and and people giving their children away and giving their husbands and wives away and giving their money away. And it starts with uh, a guy on a hill in a burlap robe teaching from the Bible to a lot of hungry 
hungry souls, I call them, and it turns into what it turned into. What were the talks about Armageddon? I mean, often with within groups, that's used as a way to get more support, to have people reaffirm their allegiance because they're so afraid of Armageddon. And by being involved or by doing what the leader tells you, somehow you'll stay safe. I mean, you know, when you have this perception of threat that is introduced to you, then anyone who says, and I can keep you safe from it, you're going to cling on to without questioning, is that threat actually real? That happens time and time again. But I'm wondering, how was it talked about in your group? Basically, in the group I was in, you were taught that you had to be on the right side of God so that when he comes back to judge the earth, you're among the chosen ones that are saved. But that was not going to happen unless you came under his will for your life. And uh, he he would set dates, which of course never came. And when when the dates of destruction wouldn't come, it would be our fault. It was always you know his people's fault. We weren't ready and we weren't willing enough. His message was that Jesus's message and life almost like didn't take, like it didn't work. People people rejected Jesus and people, human beings are not living godly lives. So he had to come back and be a different persona than the gentle, loving Jesus, you know, holding a lamb or whatever your image is with, well, now we're going to do things a different way. And I'm going to be a sinful Messiah. I'm going to demonstrate the sin of the world, which was his out for the way he he lived. And he would back those things up, you know, with certain scriptures, which he was very adept at twisting for his own agenda and a gigantic ego. I mean, just there's narcissism and then there's megalomania. And, you know, if you believe you're God, you just can do anything. And here's all these people willing to make you happy. So I don't know how his brain progressed or degressed from, from the time he started, but it all started with him being in the Navy and saying that he had this uh, experience, uh, which was probably a schizophrenic or psychotic break, as we'd call it now. And he became convinced. And as I said, he was so charismatic and he did become very skilled in the Bible. He read it all the time and he taught out of it. And I remember we used to have to take notes and notes, notes, notes. We filled up notebooks. Our Bibles were just marked up and, you know, uh, highlighters, markers, and underscore, and we wrote in the margins. And everything that we read or were taught, we had to apply to ourselves. You know, he took our identities away. He gave us different names. We weren't allowed to use the words I or me. I mean, th- those are all little tiny details that you might want to ask later, but it ties into just the idea of losing your free thought and your free will. Right. And and things that are personal to you, like being able to say I or me, being able to talk from your perspective, being able to have the things that impact you or that are true about you matter. And that gets sort of erased if you have a new uh, moniker, if you have a new name, and also you can't use the terms I or me. How interesting. I'm sure he could. Oh, very much so, I, you know. <laughs> and, you know, because I was a child, children in, intrinsically have trust for their parents. They have trust for adults. Um, children, you know, will point to the sky and say it's pink if, if the adults that they love are saying, no, that's not blue, it's pink. And so my double whammy was believing my mom and her belief and being taught to fear Julius and then also having the dichotomy of loving my dad and knowing that he wasn't buying into it. So I was always torn. You know, I always felt very torn as a child. You know, why is dad so upset? Why are they fighting? Why is mom kicking him out? You know, and he was even kind of bullied by Julius. You know, Julius was always very mad at him for not joining. And my dad, as the years went on, just grew progressively sadder because he really missed his family in Boston. You know, that's where we're all based from. You know, this is a little ahead of things too, but he died very young. He died at 38 when I was 13 of a massive heart attack. And I actually feel that a lot of the stress of this lifestyle led to it. I mean, he also didn't have the greatest physical habits, but I think he was just perpetually depressed and anxious because of trying to maintain a marriage with this woman that is really hook, line, and sinker. I mean, we went to these Bible meetings 
I mean, we just called them meetings two, three, four, five times a week. And they went on for hours and hours. And there were day ones and there were night ones. And there were different categories of meetings. And there were young people's meetings and married people's meetings. And then meetings just for men and women. And there was Sunday school and daycare. And he was pulling children out of school. And and I was forced to drop out of high school. That's another thing. A lot of cults just don't believe in education because God forbid your mind is, is educated. That's one of the biggest regrets of my life really is not going to college and not being educated. Um, I'm sort of self-educated because I read a lot and I spent a lot of time escaping into books as a child and poetry and writing. And that was really my my sanity saver. But you know, aside from going to school, which, you know, I did, it was meetings and it was not having friends and it was not being part of, quote, the world, which was anything that wasn't the cult. And I wouldn't even want to have friends over because my mother had pictures of Julius everywhere. And people would say, well, who's that? And sometimes I'd say, well, uh, that's uh, our preacher. And you know, I just wanted to be a normal kid. I wanted to play. I wanted to, you know, and then you hit adolescence and you start discovering the opposite sex and everything was wrong. You know, everything was evil. Everything was sinful. Any human, normal, God-given instinct or desire, you had to push through this sieve of, of Julius and what his will for your life was and what he would say your calling in life was. You know, when I told him I wanted to be a writer and that's what I wanted to go to college for, he was very angry and he forbade it and said, oh, well, you know, you'll write, but you'll write for God. You know, you'll write the new Bible because he was trying to rewrite. One of the companies in the beginning was called Tampco, the anointed music and publishing company. And it was an actual company. I, I mean, I remember as a kid seeing all the typewriters and all the people proofreading and writing and drawing. And these books were absolute thick I mean, you could barely lift like all these books that were being churned out to reimagine the Bible. He's still taught at meetings from the Bible, but usually from these gigantic books called Walk With Me or Walk With Jesus. And it was a real mishmash of theology, too. It was really, it was like part Christian and part Judaism and part science fiction. And, you know, we're going to discover new planets. And it was, it was out there. But of course, as a kid, I just kind of sat there like a sponge. You just take it all in. And I didn't even know the damage being done to my psyche and my, you know, I mean, I live to this day with a lot of anxiety and depression. And I attribute a lot of that to the way I was raised. They say that childhood abuse actually physically affects the amygdala in the brain and the hippocampus and any like normal process of socializing in life, anything that's like a normal part of the stages of growth are just interrupted and 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 stopped when your every move is being watched and you're criticized and and you're just in fear. I mean, I just remember if I had to use one word to sum up all the emotions and all the reactions, I would just say terror. You know, I, I felt like my soul was being hijacked and terrorized and right. And with your mother, I mean, that's something also that people do need to reconcile. When they come out, they have to figure out, can I have a relationship with this person? How do I understand them and why they would have put me through this? Usually not purposely, but still it happened. Well, her her answer, I mean, we don't really speak anymore. There's really not a relationship. But every time in the past, it's come up and always very tenuously too, because uh, it, it was still like a forbidden topic. Like I wasn't allowed to use the word cult. You know, it was always a lot of anger and a lot of tears and a lot of me just trying to get her to apologize for my pain or take some kind of accountability. And her answer was always just, I did the best I could. I, I did what I thought was right at the time. Or, you know, she would sometimes throw me, uh, I'm sorry you were hurt. But then it would be a little twisted to be somehow my fault. Like, well, you were always a very hard to reach child and you never let me get close to you anyway. And you were a rebellious brat. And, you know, and, and I'm always either appeasing her and listening to her crying and, and acting like a victim to my saying, look, this is what happened to me. I mean, he sexually propositioned me. How was that okay with you? Well, I thought it was God's will and nothing ever got resolved. And I, you know, it's a sad thing to have to say because, you know, I don't want to say anything hateful, but 
I severed all ties with her and with my brother. Like they, their minds are too far gone. There's no reaching someone that refuses to believe that they were part of something evil. Right. Right. It's interesting also when you talk about not being able to use the word I or me, one of the things that um, invalidates an apology to a great degree is when people don't use the term I or me. When they say, I'm sorry, they might say, I, I'm sorry that you went through this, that you feel that way, that you got hurt as opposed to, I'm sorry, I put you in that situation. I didn't protect you. I, 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 right. It's a very different feeling, but that person has to be willing to take responsibility and to really look at things and look at their part in things. Even if it didn't originate with your mom, still, you want to know that the person who put you in harm's way is willing to take responsibility for that part of it. You want your pain validated. You know, when you're a parent, your top responsibility is to protect your child. You're supposed to love and protect your children. And I never felt loved or protected. I felt like I was thrown to wolves. No matter how well-meaning she was at the time, no matter how much she thought she was following God, once she knew about some of the abuses going on, when I found out that people knew they're all complicit, there was just so much covering up of things going on. And as we get further in this in this interview, you'll I'll tell you why what was my final straw, my breaking point that got me to leave was when I knew that child sexual abuse was being swept under the rug. I don't want to say aloud necessarily, but yeah, I guess allowed because there was so much myriad abuse of every form going on. But, you know, getting back to my mother, there was never a productive conversation. It usually ended up with her crying or her being mad at me or just this attitude of like, give me a break and can't we move on and can't we relate to each other as grown women now? And emotionally, I still felt like a child saying, how could you do this? And I remember being at a park and swinging on a swing with my aunts. And my grandmother had a lot of kids. She had 11 kids. So some of my aunts were young. And and a lot of them, by the way, through my mother came into the cult, including my grandmother for a short amount of time. I remember being on the swimming set and my young aunt, who I was very close to, deciding to kind of announce to me, do you know what the special work means? And I had no idea what she was talking about. And that was the colloquialism for Julius taking other wives and what was known as concubines and just women that he would go from house to house and sleep with and be their husband. And they all wore wedding rings. They were all supposed to be married to him. And he was married to Joanne, who was called the Holy Spirit. It was called a two witness work, actually. It was him and Joanne. So it was it was God and his Holy Spirit. And she was just as intimidating in a different way than he was. She was a little quieter, but we all still really feared her too. We really feared being on the wrong side of either of them because it was a terrible thing to get kicked out. If if you were called, you know, the rejected one of God, you may as well just pack it in. And there actually have been suicides that happened when people were kicked out. Absolute despair and and just begging to get back in. And he he was very into favoritism and the people he didn't like at all. You know, there was there was a lot of cliques and kind of infighting and and hierarchies. I think you used that word before, echelons. And, you know, he had his 12 chosen men that he called the 12 apostles. And he even called them the apostles' names, like in the Bible. And then they were put in charge over us, according to zodiacal signs. So there you have, you know, horoscopes being brought into the whole mix. Yeah, I'm a Taurus. And so my quote apostle was a Taurus and we would have like, we would have astrological sign meetings. We were always kept busy. You know, that's another earmark of cults is that you're kept busy and distracted and sleep deprived and repetition of music, even chanting and rituals and anything to keep you off balance. You know, you're just kept very off balance. And the more confused you got about what was going on, was the very thing you then ran to for for safety and comfort. And as long as I stay close to the inner circle, as long as I'm making Julius or whoever is above me happy, I'll be okay. I'll be protected when that day comes. You know, there's so much that happens within cultic groups that is immature. And you don't 
notice it when you're in it because you don't really realize that the hierarchy is being used so that people are kept in line and then you're going to have your best friends. I picture sort of middle school playground. There's the cool lunch table. And then people who are invited, the people who are kicked out, uh, vanished. <laughs> and then there, there is the mean girl or the mean guy. There's a ton of gossip and gossip is currency. And then you're supposed to kind of gang up on people and that makes the person in charge happy. And, and it's rampant. It's so interesting. And then you can also have people who just have no self-control. They don't have to. They just can let loose, have tantrums, be cruel, do whatever they want and get away with it because they have developed their world that protects that. There's often a lot of infighting that's created. People set to be jealous of each other or think that the other one is out to get them something. There's a ton of drama. It's like a soap opera. Uh, and it can be all consuming. And then when you leave, you sometimes can think that was exhausting. Like oh, I it was exhausting. Yes. Right. The whole social piece is exhausting. Yeah. He, um, he liked to pit people against each other, even though we were supposed to be a fellowship and a family. He, I mean, I remember there being, um, divisions within the group of like A, B, C, and D. And if you were if you were like classified a D group, you were what's known as a baggage keeper, meaning when the rapture comes in Armageddon, you're the one that's going to be left behind with maybe the children that survive, or you know you're you're the keeper of the baggage. So you were you were supposed to get up to level C and then level B and A would be you know you're the closest to Julius. And the funny thing about the special work too, and a lot of this I sort of found out later is. You know, the women chosen were supposed to believe they were blessed and it was like a good thing to want to be chosen, but yet it was also horrific. I remember being a teenager and just always hoping I wouldn't be chosen, but yet being groomed to think that it was this great blessing. And that when other when other women would enter the cult, and it's kind of amazing when I think about people knowing in its heyday how crazy it was, but still being attracted to it. I remember there were young women that would come in and then we would kind of be like, well, she's pretty or she's slender and young, so he's going to choose her and what's wrong with me. But yet at the same time, he was kind of repulsive, you know, especially without his beard. When you look at earlier photos of him, he had that kind of crazed look. He was a short man. He was overweight. I mean, I'm not saying physicality is everything in this life, but it, it wasn't like he was a catch, you know what I mean? And and I heard later that he was very into some strange practices, you know, very sort of sadomasochistic, sadistic, you know, making women kneel on frozen peas to pray to him and, and trying to coerce women to do things they weren't comfortable with. And always with the idea of this is God's will. This is how God is showing his love to you. This is, I mean, he wanted to have sex with one of his own daughters. There's a a multi-part series from the early 90s on YouTube called Who is Brother Julius? There was interviews, including one with him, which was very rare, by the way, for him to go public like that was blew all of our minds. But we were taught that once he's doing that, it means that as a people, we were groomed to go out into the world to bring this message. And we had to put bumper stickers on our cars and and not be called by our regular names and always quote, witness to the truth, even to the point where I'm, you know, in a restaurant serving hot dogs and hamburgers, and I'm supposed to be talking about God and and the cult to customers. And uh, it was crazy time. It was, it was nuts. It is a crazy time. And yeah, I, I bet he didn't want to be out in public all that much because I think, I, I don't think he felt like he could snow the general population in the same way. Yeah which is why he got so angry during that interview. Right. Yeah. Cause it wasn't working. Uh, no. right. His, his charm, uh, charisma that worked for the people who were under his sort of spell is not going to work. And he's not going to come across the way in, in the sort of polished, intimidating way that I think he wanted. Okay. So let's talk about the experiences that you were alluding to before. And then with time permitting, can talk about some of the after effects. And if we run out of time, then we can talk again, I'm sure. So go ahead. In the day-to-day life of being in the cult, everything became expected and kind of de rigueur. 
But then there were times that really stood out to me, um, kind of like red flag moments. But of course, I couldn't do anything about the red flags because I was completely ensconced. I mean, that was my whole life. That was my family. That was my friends, my relatives. I was kept insulated from the world. I never even dreamed that there could be a way out. It, it wasn't in my wheelhouse at all to picture myself not in this group. I thought I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be captured, raped, and tortured. They might cut my head off, and then I'm going to go to heaven. Imagine being a teenager and planning for that. Anyway, but I remember um, Bible meetings in school and and being very afraid at the meetings, although some of them, he, he would give little nuggets of positive things so that it wasn't just a steady diet of, you know, because that's what narciss- narcissists do also. You know, there were times where, you know, there was music at the meetings and tambourines and people would run around dancing and singing and praising God and shaking in the spirit and speaking in tongues. And he, Julius would be in a good mood and he'd be blessing people. And then there were meetings where, he was uh, rebuking people and what he called devastating each other. He would have people come up on the stage and humiliate each other. You know, there was a meeting uh, where he beat children and adults, like on a stage. I remember being sick to my stomach with fear. Like, am I next? Did I do anything wrong? Oh my God. And then of course he would explain that, you know, his out was always, I'm demonstrating something and I'm, I'm demonstrating my people's lust. Therefore I have to act out lustfully with women, but it's not really something I want to do. But I remember, uh, I think I was in a line or something in the back before a meeting or maybe after the meeting and the foyer was just crammed with people. And I was in a line waiting for the restroom and Julius was there. And even when he was physically in close proximity, people either just loved being around him or were afraid. But anyway, he approached me. I remember he got up very close to my face. Like I remember him breathing on my face. And my body went like cold. I was so afraid. We had to address him as Lord. You know, everything was yes, Lord, no, Lord. And you had to call yourself this vessel and be very respectful. I mean, we had to bow and curtsy to him for heaven's sake. So he looks me up and down, right? And I'm I'm dressed very modestly. I mean, we weren't meant to look alluring or look a certain way. Taught to be very ashamed of sexual urges or interest in the opposite sex or whatever. So anyway, he looked me up and down. He said, you know, you're becoming a very beautiful woman. And then he said, of God. And so I was like, you know, thank you, Lord. And he said, have you felt the Holy Spirit yet? And I said, I don't know. I, th- I think so. Then he leans forward. And I remember him kind of leering. And he says, well, do you want to feel the spirit of God where it counts. And it was gross. My radar was like, this is gross. And he's trying to see if I would say yes to him taking yet another concubine. I, you know, I've always been kind of heavy set. I'm, I'm a bigger lady. And he never liked that. If you were overweight, like he would really get on you. He wanted every woman to weigh 128 pounds. That was like his magic number. And I was like, oh my God, in your dreams, you know. But I remember that what kind of saved me was that he he did he he didn't approve of my fat basically I mean I was I was not fat I was chunky but like the idea was that you were supposed to just keep improving yourself so that you would be appealing to him and you know he would have sex with these women and actually tell them you know this is God entering you this is the holy seed or the holy spirit you know like just really doing something so vile physically but instilling that cognitive dissonance of but it's good. I mean, so our minds were being royally effed with, you know, that, that. so that was one of my telling moments. And then, you know, the time that he called my dad up on the stage to confront him and I was cr- crying and trembling in my seat and saying under my breath, don't you hurt him? Don't you hurt him? Don't you hurt him? I was protective of my dad. And then, you know, of course, another hugely pivotal time for me was when he died when I was 13 and, and Julius talking about it at a meeting afterwards saying, and our brother Bob died because he hardened his heart against the Lord. My dad worked third shift and I remember him coming home from work and looking very pale and sweaty and sort of holding on to his chest and saying things like, get your mother. And my mother telling him to lay down and she was praying over him and you know she gave him his nitroglycerin. And as a 13 year old, I remember thinking, shouldn't you bring him to the hospital? Shouldn't we call an ambulance? We had a hospital that was like minutes from our home. There was a lot of 
faith healing that went on in this cult, casting out of spirits and demons. But I just remember being in my room and being so scared that something was going to happen to him and just having this anxiety of like, he's he's not in the hospital yet. He's His heart hurts, you know, and he was such a young man. Although I thought he was middle-aged. When you're 13, I guess you think 38 is old, but I realized later like that is young to die. So eventually my mother called my uncle, her brother, and he came over and they did take my dad to the hospital and was in my room holding on to this little white Bible that I had and just praying, kind of knowing deep inside me that I'd never see him again. Like I just had this feeling of I'm not going to see him again. And lo and behold, my mom comes home holding a white rose at four in the morning and says he's gone. And then I went into my room. I was in shock. And I remember opening up my diary to March 23rd, 1980. And my entry was um, very brief. And I just remember writing early this morning, daddy died. I knew at that moment, there was this big black magic marker line between any normalcy and total insanity. And I felt this heavy steel door clanging shut on an idea of escape. You know, because I always fantasized that my dad would sort of save us from this. And then, and then, you know, what was extra awful about this time now of mourning as a 13-year-old, in the cult, we weren't really allowed to mourn. And I remember the days following his death, like all of her friends and people from the cult coming over and like praying over the house and saying things like we're casting out spirits of self-pity. And and I was like, self-pity. Like, I'm crying because my dad died. This is not self-pity. And then the awkwardness of going to his funeral in Massachusetts so that all of his his family could be there and me feeling very set apart because of the cult and and wanting to sit near my cousins and my aunt, you know, who's my dad's sister. And we're still very close to this day, as a matter of fact. She's kind of, she's kind of like the only relative that ever really understood what I went through. So then my mother met a man in the cult who she married. He was one of the upper echelons, a man much older than her. Like my mom was a widow at 37. And I would say she was around 39 when she met this man who was like in his 70s, much older than her. And she decided to marry him. And my brother, by the way, was 18 when he left home and got married to one of Julius's daughters. So he was out of the picture at 18. He had a child. So it was me living at home with my mom and then finding out we had to move to where this man lived, which meant, and I was a junior in high school at the time, which prevented me from even finishing my senior year because they wouldn't drive me to school. So I couldn't bear him at all. He was unbearable to me. And so when I was 17, I saved some money. I got a little ramshackle car moved into an apartment with a bunch of other girls from the cult, worked full-time at the hot dog place. And we were all just poor as church mice. I mean, we had no curtains on the windows and we were eating like, I remember going to the grocery store at the end of a shift and like going to the deli and saying to the guy, like, I have $4, you know, can you sell me like the the hunk of bologna that you cut off the end, you know, <laughs> like just really poor, but needing to be away from my mother and stepfather. And then from there, I moved around a lot. I lived with some other girls and then I lived with my aunt for a while. And then I lived with a friend of my mom. And then my brother got divorced and he lived with some men in the cult. There was a lot of communal living as far as like if you were single. I mean, it wasn't a technical, like a compound or anything, but there was just a lot of insular men living with a group of men and women living with a bunch of single women and everyone just kind of pooling their money. And so I was about 20, maybe 21, you know, still just working and still going to meetings and realizing I couldn't date unless Julius okayed it. And he, you know, he liked playing a lot of games like that too. He loved knowing everyone's personal life and no, I want you to be with this one. I don't want you to be with that one. So my brother was on his own living with these other men. And I went over there one day, I think with like a casserole or something for him. and. I met my, the man that was going to be my first husband, who was brand new to the cult, by the way. He was like 28 years old and he had just come in with his brother and he had just separated from his wife and brand new baby because he was instantly brainwashed and they were unbelievers. And then Julius told us to start dating and we pretty much had like an arranged marriage. 
a cult wedding was held in someone's home and it was officiated by, uh, I guess, a legal justice of the peace. So we got married and went on this crazy, weird honeymoon to Cape Cod in February. And there's nothing to do in Cape Cod in February. Everything was closed. So we went ahead and conceived the child like that very night. I joke about it sometimes. And I say, you know, if anyone thinks you can't get pregnant, literally the first time you have sex, you can. Because I, and I was even using protection too, but that's another whole story. So we came home from this trip after the marriage and nine months and 10 days to the day, I had my child, a beautiful little girl who I wasn't allowed to name because Julius also named all the children. And people in the cult would babysit, like we would all babysit each other's children so that we could all still go to meetings. And I would go to meetings and my husband would stay home with her and vice versa. I mean, when she was a little bit older, of course. And then I worked for like the cult Sunday schools and like the daycare for a while. But I always felt really protective of my baby. Like I like really like everything in me changed and shifted when I became a mom very, very dramatically within me, because within four years of having her, I was like, I'm out of here. She was four and my niece was five. And I found out that my niece was being molested right under my roof because my mother-in-law had an arranged marriage with this man much younger than her. And we'll call him William Nelson. They would babysit my little niece who was five and he was molesting her on more than one occasion. This became found out. And I remember just being in shock because, oh my God, like my daughter used to get babysat sometimes too. Now, my daughter has told me that nothing ever happened to her, but she also says, if it did, I wouldn't have remembered. So to this day, I don't really know if I was able to protect her or not, but I would really like to think that nothing happened to her, but it was bad enough that it happened to my niece, her cousin. So I remember things being a little bit of a blur at that time, but that when my husband found out, he was absolutely furious. He was livid and he got on the phone and he started kind of going up the ranks with talking to this one and talking to that one and how dare this be allowed to go on. I want him out. I'm, you know, I'm going to hurt him. And he was, and he was demanding to speak to Julius demanding. Yeah. And I think he wound up actually being on the phone with Julius and he was screaming at him and Julius was rebuking him and saying, that's not your business. I'll take care of it. And the long and the short of it is that nothing really happened to this man. Like I think this man stopped going to meetings and he kind of went into seclusion, but I don't recall him going to jail or charges being pressed. This is part of the sickness of cults is that things are very hush-hush, things are swept under the carpet. And the reason why Julius didn't really want to address it is because there was a lot of sexual abuse going on. I can't attest to a lot of other children, except that one of his sons did jail time for molesting underage children. And and it was a very, very brief time after I found out about this that I had just had it. I remember thinking very clearly in my mind, nobody is going to touch my daughter. I don't care if I burn in hell. It's not happening. And I just decided I'm out of here. I'm going to leave my husband. I'm going to put her in a car with a couple bags of belongings. And oh, and at this point also, I had stopped going to a lot of meetings. I remember saying I was going to go to a meeting, but like driving around and going to a movie. I specifically remember how much it was raining that one night when I was supposed to uh, turn left to go to a meeting. And I turned right and took myself to go see Driving Miss Daisy of all things. You know, watching this innocuous, beautiful movie and feeling like the world's worst sinner because I wasn't in a meeting. And I was like, My heart was like racing during this movie. Oh my God, I'm at a movie. I'm so worldly. Oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble. Because if you didn't go to a meeting, you did get a phone call. Anyway, I drove around town with my little girl in the car. And back then, I mean, I guess it was before the internet. It was 1992. And, you know, you found out about houses for rent or apartments because somebody just would have a little sign out in their yard. And I just drove around until I saw this little crappy house, but there was a for rent sign. And I remember just thinking, I need to scrape up money. I'll try to get it from my husband. And it was very affordable. But I just wanted to live somewhere with my daughter and keep her safe. And I wanted to be out of the cult. 
and I knew what it would cost me. I, I knew that it would cost me my family and that I would get phone calls and I would get threats. And so she wasn't in school yet. And I took a job taking care of elderly people. I certainly didn't have a resume. I mean, you know, <laughs> I was in a cult. But I but I remember going, you know, finding out answering ads in the paper for, you know, people that needed help with their elderly parents or whatever. And I remember bringing my daughter with me, asking permission, you know, can my little girl's not in school yet and I can't afford daycare. And, you know, I, I had these clients that really took pity on my situation. Things lined up and started happening serendipitously that allowed me to function in a limited capacity, but I was a functioning human outside of this cult. You paint so many interesting pictures here of someone who has wanted to be part of the world and mainstream life, but has had to work hard to get back on track with life and, or just find a way to feel a part of things. And, and with all of your struggles with, I mean, certainly as you talked about being able to survive, you have a lot of survival skills and that you were finding ways to provide for yourself in meager ways, in whatever way you could, but you did, you survived clearly and being able to raise kids being able to make decisions also that were about safety, about doing what was right and giving your kids a chance to have things that you didn't have. And I think that says so much about the person you are. My turning point was being a mom. And I really attribute my feeling protective of her with what gave me the ability to leave. Because honestly, I can't sit here and say for sure if I ever would have left on my own. I mean, before he died in 96 and things kind of dissolved, the cult dissolved, but yet there's still believers out there. And he died in a rather anticlimactic way because he was supposed to bring about the end of the world and he died supposedly of a heart attack with one of his wives. But yeah, when I had my daughter, it was just this hard and fast decision that she was not going to be abused the way I was because she was four and I was raised up in it when I was five. And I attribute my maternal love for her superseding any fear I had of the cult. And I was willing to give that all up and leave that all behind. Honestly, for a couple of years, it really sounds corny like the song, but it was her and me against the world. It literally was just her and me. And she went to school and she's very, very gregarious. She made a lot of friends. She really doesn't remember much about the cult. She remembers being babysat a lot and things like that. But oh, and like the public baptism and stuff like that, there was always these big picnics and river baptisms. But um, she's not close to her dad anymore. She never really was. He kind of, when he left, you know, he's on his fourth marriage right now and he's like, does his own thing. He lives in Arizona. And I don't mean to disparage, it's just that she and I have a wonderful relationship. Like she, she doesn't always want to talk about the cult. She supports me doing things like this, but I'm not even sure hundred percent if she's ever watched the documentary I was in a couple of years ago. But recently we were in the car together and she's a grown woman. She's almost 34. And we weren't squabbling. Like we weren't having any mother daughter power dynamic. Like there, like there was none of that. And she said things to me that were so beautiful. Like she goes, mom, I never knew we were poor growing up. She goes, I never thought I was poor. She says, you always fed me and you got me little toys and you got me ice cream. And that gave me such a feeling of victory. And then she said, um, this was kind of funny because she goes, I don't really think of you as my mom. And I was like all offended and hurt. I'm like, what do you mean? And she goes, she says, I think of you as my oldest friend. She says, you're the friend I've had the longest in life. And just you know, just knowing that I could leave behind everything I didn't have. You know, I did not have that with my mother at all. I have no memory of maternal warmth from that woman. None. I don't remember hugs. I don't remember school clothes shopping. I don't remember her even hugging me after my dad died. So I have tried to give that to my kids in spades. I protected my grandchildren from my mother too. She has never met them. They're now six and four and she has never met them and she never will. And she's very upset about that. She feels very entitled. But my kids have never seen her as a grandmother. I mean, as a matter of fact, she put my son in harm's way because when he was about nine, I let her babysit him 
And she let him go out on this boat with a known pedophile who was Julius's son, by the way. And I remember just being so, I mean, anger is not even the word, just outraged and betrayed that like, you people really don't even care what happens to children. Like you don't care about your grandson. I, I would I would die for my kids and grandkids. That's the truth. From that point on, I made sure she she never saw my kids, you know, and I don't have a relationship with her. I just think of her as a person I know. And the same with my brother. I haven't seen him in years and years and years. We have no relationship. So my circle in life is very small. I mean, I'm hoping it gets bigger maybe when my books get published, but I keep my circle really small. I have a hard time trusting people, but yet I'm here doing this, you know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think in terms of your circle being small, and then we'll we'll finish up. And I want, the, want to say something about what you were just talking about. You know, uh, the reason that I do a former member support group every other week is because of people having their circle be very small. And among other reasons, I mean, I want them to feel supported, but also that they meet each other. That when you start speaking or you start speaking at conferences or International Cultic Studies Association, your circle gets expanded. And it's a very important thing. And if you wanted me to connect you with others, I'm very happy to, because I I would love that. I've met thousands of people over the years. So yeah, it would be, I'll, I'll let you know about ways to do that. I appreciate that. Sure. Of course. And I'll make a note of that. I want you to really be able to sort of take in, as you've said, you know, the, the triumph of the things that you've done and Hearing that from your daughter, I mean, those are words that most people never hear from their kids. I mean, that she was so open and effusive with you and validating of all that you did and all that you provided that you didn't receive. And I think that that says so much about who you are and how much you are having to fight against and overcome in order to follow what you know is right and follow the lead of your conscience, providing something for yourself, again, that you didn't get, but I think in some ways you get something from providing it and seeing, right, that that can now be woven into your life, that there is a relationship. And if it's not with your mother, it can be with your daughter, that there's a familial relationship that feels right and in present and protective. And I think it's okay for you to to have that guideline where you don't want your kids or grandkids to have a relationship with your mother. I mean, it sounds like she's she needs to kind of earn that. And she hasn't because of the decisions that she's still making and the words that she hasn't spoken. I feel that she suffers from like actual clinical narcissism because I've done a lot of studies on that, especially between mothers and daughters. She just doesn't have it to give. I mean, I don't know if it would have been different had she left the cult or not, but she is just the type of person that I just can't imagine my kids or grandkids having a relationship with her because everything has to be about her latest religious fervor, you know, because she'll go from guru to guru to guru. And if I had a, a message to sum it up, it's that it's an amazing thing. You can call it a miracle or just an amazing resiliency of human spirit to actually be able to listen to a voice inside of you which becomes with practice louder than any voice outside of you because Julius had a loud, booming voice. So I'm saying that literally as well as figuratively. Like, like his voice was like the soundtrack of my growing up. But then when I had Leah and knew that I had to be a protective mom, my voice inside got louder. And I just love knowing that that's not always the case with people. And unfortunately, people stay stuck in cults but that it is possible to leave and that you can actually trust people in, in the world. See, I'm, I still speak in that language occasionally, but you know that everything is not death and doom and gloom and destruction. I mean, life is very hard right now. The world's not a particularly safe place, but there's still beauty all around us and beautiful relationships and people I can trust. And I actually think that my experiences have made me a stronger person, better, not bitter, you know, wounded healer, if you will. And I, I just want people to know it's possible that, that healing can happen and that you don't even have to leave and find another religion or find any particular theology because I 
I believe kind of more in, in nature and like sort of a benevolent force of the universe. I'm very tapped into, I get it a lot from my, my poetry, you know, it's a lot of it's about nature and, and I have peace today. Like I, I'm not here to grind an ax or because I hate anybody. I just want to tell the truth about just how damaging these cults are and they need to be exposed and, and shut down and confronted. They really do. And so I'm so glad that you are participating in that, that you are becoming your own booming voice. So thank you. It was lovely to start to get to know you. And I'll be back in touch with some resources for you because they're really, I mean, I, this is a message for you and also anyone else listening. There are so many people who have been impacted by cults, by relationships with malignant narcissists. And there are so many thousands of thousands of people out there. And they're not connecting to each other because I think they're used to feeling different, othered in isolation. And so sometimes they need a conduit to make the connection. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Rachel, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Wow. So... There are times that people will tell me their story and I think, how did you do this? How did you make it beyond this? Because this is so disturbing and people like this brother Julius are very disturbing characters. You wonder also how they got away with all that they got away with and how they took over people's lives to this degree when they were just so reprehensible and so unappealing and so a lot of things that would be repellent to a lot of people. But... It comes down to the control, and he used so much. He made people also welcome being persecuted, and he talked about Armageddon, keeping people in this sort of suspended animation of fear, waiting for something to happen. And he kind of talked about himself in very fanciful and delusional ways about how he was the Messiah and how he was the one who was going to decide the fate of the planet and everyone on it, and that he had ultimately the control over everyone and had the right to have that, and God spoke through him, etc., etc. That's not necessarily new, at least not in this world (laughs) and in my field. It's probably different for what a lot of people hear, but not me. What is very clever, unfortunately, about Brother Julius is that he did something that only a few others do, where they embrace their faults and call themselves something so that you don't call them that. They kind of build in and out. And what I mean by that is, that when he started really being sinful, however it is defined within religious communities to be sinful, that you sin according to the Bible, and that he couldn't hide it anymore, nor was he even really trying all that hard hard to uh, hide it to begin with and to not totally reveal himself warts and all, but that when he really was doing terrible, terrible things and was doing things with people who were underage, etc. He then started referring to himself as the sinful Messiah. So, already there's a problem. Because if you're going to call yourself the Messiah, then you are asserting that you are above all others. So, there is no space in there for you to also be a sinner. So it's a misnomer, it's a contradiction, but that's nothing new in cultic systems. But the clever part about calling yourself a sinful messiah is that if someone then were to come up to him and say, I'm not going to listen to you, you're a sinner, he could say, I know, I already call myself that. So then you feel like you don't really have a leg to stand on if you're trying to make a point and you're trying to show who he really is. He's already saying, yeah, I know. And he's also saying, I don't care. So That means that he has no sense and he had no sense about boundaries, about what is okay and what's not okay. He was basically saying, I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm just going to take on this 
kind of guise or moniker or title that shows that I'm not holding myself up to any standards at all. And that I can also say that I am this person who is the Messiah, but also a sinner. It's so jumbled. It's hard to even know how to approach that. If he were in a courtroom, I think that, you know, opposing counsel would be scratching their heads saying, well, okay, where do we go with this? So when people call themselves things, it really is a manipulation. It really is to disarm the people around them. It's like groups that are absolute cults and will say, oh, well, so what if we're a cult? You know, look up cult in the dictionary. It's not such a bad thing, as though that's the definition everyone uses in this field. That's never the definition we use. It's very watered down and benign. But they will say, so what? So let's say we are that, or we are that, they'll sometimes boldly say. And so then if someone accuses them of that, they say, uh, we know. And again, more importantly, and we don't care, but they should care. And this brother Julius should have cared about being someone who, given a certain title that he gave himself, should hold himself up to a certain standard and could be held up to certain standards. But he was saying, I want this to be sort of a playground for whatever I want to do, and I want to get away with it. When you're involved in a group or in a relationship and people keep giving themselves an out, and they say, so what if I'm a controller? So what if I'm manipulative? So what if I abuse you? So what if I'm, pardon the expression, an asshole? Okay, well, it shouldn't be that it's so what. It should matter. And so you don't have to say, well, all right, there's nothing for me to say here because they already said it. You can say, I'm glad you recognized it. <laughs> and it bothers me. And it should bother you. And because it doesn't bother you, I can't trust you. Because you have no code of honor or code of ethics. And that means that it's time for me to go. That's something to practice feeling, something to practice saying, so that the perpetrators can't just keep giving themselves an out and everyone then feels like they have to go along with it because they already insulted themselves. It is a way to call off the dogs. It is a way to get people to back down. Don't let it work. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.